0: Between them, the cash boost and the JobKeeper payments should enable about, in my estimate, about 70 to 80% of affected businesses to continue and survive throughout this lockdown period, this so-called hibernation period. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm.
1: Welcome to another COVID 19 update of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson, and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In this episode, Bob Deutsch, Senior Tax Counsel of the Tax Institute, will do a general review of the federal COVID-19 measures for business that have been put in place so far, but then also look much closer at the tax keeper payment because that is highly current at the moment. It's actually the, the help for individuals, at least as far as it is costed out, it's actually not that expensive, but the dimensions completely change when you look at help for businesses. You know, just as an example, the second economic support payment costs $4 billion, whereas the cash flow boost is $31 billion. It, it is a completely different game, yes. basically, when we come to help for business.
0: Well, yes, but when you say help for business, it's really helping business to help individuals to keep them employed and connected. So I think it's a little bit misleading to say it's all about help for business. It's all about help for business to keep employees, individuals engaged with their previous or their, their current employer and to sort of guide them, if you like, through this hibernation period that we're experiencing right now. So I don't think it's quite fair to say they're spending more on business than on individuals. It, at the end of the day, it's pretty much all, certainly the job keeper is pretty much entirely about individuals because the business collects the $1,500 if they're eligible, but only if They've paid the fifteen hundred dollars to an employee. It's not really a business measure. It's sort of it's focused on the business, but it's for the purpose of the individual and keeping the individual engaged.
1: Yes, very good point. So the job keeper definitely covers the business as well as the individuals that work in this business?
0: Well, I, I would put it differently. I would say it actually covers the individuals. I suppose it covers the business in the sense that it is helping the business to survive. But the way it is going to help that business survive is by ensuring that the business can hold its workforce together through this hibernation period. And they're going to do that by effectively giving every business that has an eligible employee $1,500 a fortnight, provided that they have paid that to the employee. So it's kind of helping the business to survive, but it's helping the employee to stay engaged. So I I wouldn't use that sort of dichotomy of individual versus business, because at the end of the day, it's all about keeping everybody engaged. It does help the business. I'm not suggesting for a moment that it doesn't, but it's really about getting money into the hands of the employees keeping them employed during this so-called hibernation period. So the big picture is that there is a series of measures that have been introduced, and they've been introduced on a sort of over a spectrum of time. So it didn't all happen at once. It happened almost like over a three- or four-week period that we had different stimulus packages. The sum total of it is a huge package. It's going to cost us somewhere in the order of 10% of GDP. So this is not a Mickey Mouse set of measures. These are big numbers. For a country the size of Australia, for an economy the size of Australia, these are big bucks that are being thrown around. I don't mean to use the phrase thrown around in a pejorative sense. It's money that I think at the end of the day will be very well spent. But it is going to cost us and we will be repaying this bill for many, many years. But the government has to do this. It's absolutely vital to, and I don't want to sound overly dramatic, but it's absolutely vital for the survival and ongoing benefit of the Australian economy. Without these measures, if we just went on ignoring the coronavirus lockdown and just saying, well, everybody has to fend for themselves, we would have unemployment rates of 20%. We would have people being fractured in a societal sense and it would be a terrible situation for Australia. So I think the government is doing overall a fantastic job in ensuring the viability of our economy and our society going forward. And I think that's a really important aspect of all this. There will be people who will feel aggrieved because they miss out. There will be people who are overcompensated. And that, unfortunately, is the outcome of measures that have been rushed, but they've been rushed for a reason. They've been rushed because we need these things in place in a hurry. The measures themselves, there are lots of different things going on, but I guess the two big ones that are costing a lot of money are the cash boost for business and the job keeper program, the job keeper payments as they're referred to. These two measures alone will make up huge amounts of that 10% of GDP that I referred to earlier. So, for example, the JobKeeper payment will cost somewhere in the order of $130 billion. Now, some people have suggested it will be less. Some people have suggested it will be more. I suspect it'll probably be fairly close to the mark unless the lockdown period ends earlier than we currently think. So if the lockdown period continues, broadly speaking, as we have it at the moment, through to the end of September, I think it will end up costing us in the region of $130 billion. If it is loosened, in other words, the the lockdown is less restrictive at an earlier point in time, I think it will end up costing us less. How much less will depend on the extent of those restrictions being lifted, and when it all happens. But we're probably talking somewhere in the $100 plus range. There are other measures. I've talked about them on the previous occasion. I won't go into them in any detail at the moment. But for example, the enhanced instant asset write-off that increases the amount that can be written off up until the end of this current tax year to 150,000 from 30,000. So it's a huge step up. Accelerated depreciation for assets which are not deducted under the instant asset write-off. Wage assistance to help small business keep their apprentices and trainees. Other economic support payments of roughly $750 payable to social security and veterans income support recipients. And then release of superannuation benefits, $10,000 in the current tax year and $10,000 in the next tax year. Not something that I'm wildly enthusiastic about, but something that I accept as probably a necessary short-term mechanism to assist people get through these difficult periods. Then there are some other measures. Certainly, the tax office is lending a hand with some delayed lodgement arrangements. They will help as well. They will help tax practitioners in particular um, who are feeling the pinch at the moment. There's short-term changes to the Corporations Act and the Bankruptcy Act, and they're designed to provide relief for persons who are unable to meet their obligations. And they work in a number of different ways. So, for example, the Corporations Act is amended to extend the period within which to comply with a creditor's statutory demand from 21 days to six months, and to increase the amount for which a creditor's statutory demand can be issued from $2,000 up to $20,000, and there are similar measures being amendments being made to the Bankruptcy Act, and then there's a temporary safe harbour that's been introduced to relieve personal liabilities of directors for insolvent trading of a company for any debt incurred in the ordinary course of the company's business, and that will apply for six months from the date of royal assent, which I think has already happened or is about to, or such longer period as will be prescribed. So for that six-month period from now up until the end of September, roughly, a company will be able to trade during that time, even though technically it is insolvent. Now, that's a measure that, again, I'm not that enthusiastic about because I think it provides a precedent that I'm not keen on. Company directors should not be allowing the company to engage in business transactions while knowing that the company is insolvent. But again, I accept that as an emergency temporary measure, it's probably something that is necessary to get us through this six-month period. Now, there are also arrangements that are being made. You mentioned the guarantee. So there's a scheme that is being introduced to grant guarantees to financial institutions in connections with loans that are made or to be made to small and medium enterprises. And that, again, is an important measure that will have some important consequences, but it will simply enable banks to more willingly lend money to these types of organisations because they will have backing to support the loan in the event that the company gets into trouble during the course of the next six months.
1: Because they only bear 50% of the risk now because the government guarantees the other 50% of the risk.
0: Correct. So it's a substantial reduction in the risk that the financial institution will be undertaking.
1: And these unsecured loans are capped at two hundred and fifty thousand, correct?
0: Yes, right. Correct. Yes. The JobKeeper payment. The way this has been designed in a legislative sense is that there was an Act of Parliament which went by the rather flamboyant name of the coronavirus economic response package brackets, payments and benefits, close brackets, Act 2020. And that Act of Parliament was simply a sort of bare bones where it outlined some basic features of what I'm about to describe in more detail, but really didn't tell you that much. The most important section of that Act that people should Know about is section 19 of that act, which is headed. I recall the name that's used to head it is contrived schemes, and it is a part 4a, in other words, a general anti avoidance rule, which is designed to stop anybody taking action which will create an outcome that would not otherwise apply, whereby they would receive a JobKeeper payment or they would receive an increased JobKeeper payment and in those circumstances, Section 19 of the Act, that's the Coronavirus Economic Response Package Payments and Benefits Act of 2020, Section 19, would enable the Commissioner to reverse that payment. It's an important provision because it's actually in the Act and We're now going to look at the rules which are followed. It's not in the rules. So if you just look at the rules, you won't see that provision. Now, subsequent to that act being passed, an instrument called the Coronavirus Economic Response Package Payments and Benefits Rules 2020 was formulated by the Treasurer. And these are the rules that contain the details of the JobKeeper payment. Now, why is some of it done as rules and some as an act of Parliament? Well, the answer is probably that the rules can be changed more easily. So if they get the rules wrong, they can be changed by a further instrument of the Treasurer. They don't have to go back, as I understand it, and seek the full consent of Parliament all over again whereas an Act of Parliament can only be changed by a further Act Act of Parliament. So that is why we seem to have got to this position. Now, the critical bit about the rules is that it is really divided into two, even though you don't see this. Essentially, there are two different things going on here. The first thing is that there is an entitlement based on paid employees for an employer. That's number one, an entitlement based on paid employees for an employer. The second thing which is going on is a separate set of rules which is an entitlement based on business participation. And that's essentially for sole traders, partners in a partnership, beneficiaries in a discretionary trust, directors of a company. And they apply differently, that second group. The one that most people are talking about is the first group that is entitlement based on paid employees. And that's an amount that is paid to the employer. I'll focus on that first and I'll come back to the second group in a moment. This first group is covered by rule number six. I'll call them rule numbers rather than sections, although they they refer in the actual provisions to sections. But rule six, is the key driving provision. And what it says is that an entity, which we will call the employer, is entitled to a JobKeeper payment for an individual for a particular fortnightly period if a number of conditions are satisfied. I'll just repeat that. An entity which we call the employer is entitled to a JobKeeper payment for an individual for a fortnight if a number of conditions are satisfied. Before we get to the conditions, the amount of the JobKeeper payment is the same for everybody. $1,500 a fortnight. So just we need to understand the concept here. The entity being the employer is entitled to $1,500 a fortnight for every individual that it employs if it meets these conditions that I'm going to talk about in a moment. What are the conditions? Well, there's a number of things. I guess the starting point is that the employer must carry on business in Australia on the 1st of March 2020 or it must be a non-profit body that pursues its objectives principally in Australia on that date. So it's either an entity that carries on business in Australia or a non-profit body on 1 March 2020. We will forget for the moment non-profit bodies. There's charities and on. The main thrust today is about businesses. First thing the employer has to show is that on the 1st of March 2020, the entity carried on business in Australia. The second thing that the employer has to show is that it's not excluded and there's a special provision that excludes certain entities. The main entities excluded are... Entities which were subject to a levy under the Major Bank Levy Act of 2017, any Australian government agency, a local governing body, a sovereign entity, a company that has had a liquidator or a provisional liquidator appointed, or an individual where a trustee in bankruptcy has been appointed. All those types of entities are excluded. The employer has to make sure it's not one of those. That's a condition number two, if you like. So condition number one is carry on business in Australia as at 1 March 2020. Condition number two is you're not an excluded entity. Condition number three is that the individual employee you are looking at is an eligible employee. Now, an eligible employee is somebody who is, as at the first of March 2020, over the age of 16, they are employed by the entity, they are either an employee of the entity or a long-term casual employee of the entity, and they're an Australian resident as defined in the Social Security Act, or the holder of a special category visa. Triple four, correct?
1: Triple four, so Triple covering four. New Zealand, New Zealand residents, New exactly. Zealand citizens.
0: Exactly. Now, you'll notice that that will exclude anybody who is a casual employee, but not a long term casual employee. Now, this has caused a lot of controversy because a long-term casual employee is somebody who has been, trying to get the right wording here, somebody who has been employed by the entity on a regular and systematic basis during the period of 12 months. So the question has arisen, well, what's regular and systematic basis? What does that mean? The answer is we don't quite know. But what it does mean is that in order for a casual employee to be covered, they have to have had that kind of link with the employer for at least 12 months. Now, in the hospitality industry, I understand that there are heaps of casual employees who would not have that length of connection with the employer. They will miss out. So will people who are not residents of Australia and don't hold a special category visa. They will also miss out. Again, very controversial. But that's all tied up with this idea of what is an eligible employee. And so to, um, to be
1: an Australian resident, you need to be a citizen or permanent resident, putting correct. the subcategory 444 for New Zealanders aside. So a citizen mm-hmm. or a permanent resident, it doesn't cover skilled Migrants, so it doesn't cover the special employer sponsored or government sponsored visas.
0: No, it wouldn't. So, you've got again a whole class of people who will be excluded from the payment. Now, the other thing that an eligible employee has to do to be an eligible employee is that it has to give notice to the employer stating that the individual satisfies all those requirements and agrees to be nominated they also have to state that they are not otherwise excluded now they could otherwise be excluded if they get some other type of benefit, such as paid parental leave or paid dad and partner pay or
1: job seeker if well, you receive job seeker then you're excluded from job keeper
0: that's true so if you get job seeker, you can't be a job keeper. You're also excluded if you're incapacitated and you get a worker's compensation payment in respect of that incapacity. So there's lots of issues around what is an eligible employee, but We will assume for the moment that that condition is satisfied. I think that I described as the third condition to qualify.
1: Is there already an official form that the employee needs to fill out?
0: Well, the rules say the requirements are that the individual has given to the entity a notice in the approved form.
1: And the answer is yes, the form is already out. The JobKeeper Employee Nomination Notice is available on the ATO website so before you enroll to receive JobKeeper payments, you need to complete section A on the JobKeeper employee nomination notice, <laughs> it's quite about full, and then present this form to your employees. They need to sign that they A, meet the requirements so that they qualify, and B, that they want you to nominate them for the JobKeeper scheme. You don't actually need to submit this form to the ATO, but you need to keep it for five years. That is your proof that your employees agreed to be nominated by you to receive the JobKeeper payments for them. And by the way, next Monday, it all starts next Monday, the 20th of April 2020, you will be able to officially enroll with the ATO for the JobKeeper payment. So far, anything you've done is just an expression of interest. And if you want to claim the JobKeeper payment for April, you need to enroll before the 30th of April. So you just have 10 days. To enrol, and then from the 4th of May, you need to claim the jobkeeper payment for April, and confirm which of your employees you claim jobkeeper payments for. So enrol between the 20th and the 30th of April for April, and then claim the actual jobkeeper payment from the 4th of May onwards.
0: That was condition three, I, think three. I said. Yes, three. Yes. Condition four is that. The amount that the employer pays the employee is equal to or more than $1,500. So the employer only satisfies condition number four if, in respect of the individual, it pays that individual at least $1,500. That can be in the form of salary, wages, commission, bonuses, allowances. It also includes the amount that needs to be withheld for tax because this is a taxable payment for the employee. It also includes contributions that might be made under a salary sacrifice arrangement. And it can include an amount that is otherwise dealt with for and on behalf of the employee. So it includes a lot of things, but essentially for most people it will be salary and wages and tax.
1: Bob, can I just very quickly ask you something about that? Is this fifteen hundred dollars payment is not subject to superannuation guarantee,
0: correct? Yes, that's right. The job keeper payment is not subject to super. If they pay more, then the excess is subject to super. Up to fifteen hundred dollars, it's a matter for the employer as to whether he, she, or it wishes to pay super on that amount, but it's not a mandatory superannuation payment up to the $1,500.
1: That can be a disadvantage for some employees who still work, who are not affected by the by the lockdown, and they are earning more than $1,500 for them. So for them, it just continues as usual. If they now gave notice to their employer that they are happy to be included in it so that the employer can receive $1,500, then unless they come to another arrangement with their employer, they might lose the super on those $1,500, which otherwise they would be entitled to if they weren't part of the JobKeeper payment.
0: That's true.
1: It's fine for employees who otherwise wouldn't receive anything, who are in a complete lockdown and can't work anymore. Then $1,500 without super is better than nothing. But if an employee is still working, I do appreciate that the business needs to be affected by COVID-19 to qualify. Which yes, we, we haven't, haven't got t- to that, yeah, yeah we yet. haven't got, got to yeah. that one yet, but if the employee is still even though the business is affected, if the employee is still able to work, then going onto the jobkeeper then would mean some loss of their super
0: that's true. it could mean that there would be a loss of some some super in that instance, yes.
1: And second and third question, annual leave and sick leave and long service leave, that still ticks in the background anyway. That's not affected by the stand down. So that just continue ticking in the background based on their normal salary. So not on the $1,500, but based on the normal salary, correct?
0: That's correct. Yes. Now, that I think covers what I loosely describe as the wage condition, which is what this is all about. Um, the next condition, which is important to understand, what number am I up to? I think I'm up I've... to the fifth condition, five, mm-hmm. is the real doozy in the whole thing. And that is that if the aggregate turnover of the employer is less than a billion dollars, the employer has to show a decline in turnover in a period this year compared to the comparable period last year of at least 30%. If the aggregate turnover is more than a billion, it has to show a decline of at least 50%. And if the employer is a not non profit body, essentially, it has to show a decline of at least fifteen percent. That's one five. So it's either 30, 50 or one five. For the purposes of today, I'm going to assume that we're only talking about thirty percent decliners. In other words, they're all businesses, not non profits. And they've all got turnover of less than aggregate turnover of less than a billion dollars.
1: And that also means that why, for example, the cash flow boost is limited to businesses with a turnover of less than 500 million, the JobKeeper payment covers any business, no matter how big it is, as long as it's not subject to the major bank levy or a government entity or a company in liquidation. So even BHP, Qantas, any big company is covered by the JobKeeper payment. And that's why it's so expensive, I think, because we're talking about a lot of employees.
0: Yes, but BHP won't be able to show a 30% decline in turnover. So it won't qualify, but Qantas probably will. Well, not probably, it almost certainly will because its revenue would have collapsed, one would assume. And that's exactly what it's designed for. It's designed to enable Qantas... To hold on to its employees. Admittedly, it can pay them and it probably will have to pay them significantly more than $1,500. To qualify for this payment, the employer has to show that they've paid a minimum of $1,500 to the individual in a fortnightly period. So Qantas would qualify, presumably. But just on the turnover test, Essentially what it does, there's heaps of questions around this turnover test, heaps of questions, but essentially what it's saying is pick a period in the current year, and that period can be any calendar month, which ends the 31st of March 2020 up to the 30th of September 2020, any calendar month, or pick the quarter that starts on 1 April 2020 or the quarter that starts on 1 July 2020. And then look at the same period last year. And if your GST turnover is less by 30% or more in the current period that you have selected by comparison to the comparable or the comparison period Last year, you satisfy the test. Now you can pick, for example, the period ended 31 March 2020, and you say my turnover in this month is $200,000. If my turnover in the period to 31 March 2019 was a million dollars, I satisfy the test. Why? Because there's been a more than 30% decline over the course of that those two years, looking at those two comparison periods. Now, if you satisfy the test for March 2019, you do not have to go back and retest later on. You just get the JobKeeper payment throughout this period of the JobKeeper payment applying.
1: Oh, really? So you don't have to keep testing?
0: I don't believe you do. It doesn't say anywhere that you have to keep retesting. You just have to satisfy it at the start. So you could find that you've got what I've just described, a decline from a $1 million to 200000 Then things might get better. Or maybe April will be just as bad because, well, because April's almost over and... Things are not looking great, and maybe May might be just as bad. But by June, they may have lifted some restrictions, things might look a little better. Barring them ending the JobKeeper payment entirely, which they can do, but if they choose not to do that, then
1: yeah, then it just continues. You, oh, sorry, you, 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 then, yeah, then, then you just, just continue. continue.
0: Yeah, that's right. Now, if you do the testing. This is the converse of that. If you do the testing for March 31, and And you you don't satisfy, well, you don't succeed in showing a 30% decline, you can't get the JobKeeper payment at that point in time. But you can keep retesting. You can keep retesting. And it's possible that you won't get it for March, but you might get it for April. And then you don't or need to
1: possible. retest either. Just if you have a 30% decline in one month during this period, then you're in. So it's basically just the door you have to get in through once and then you're in.
0: That's my understanding of it. And the fact that you can't get in the door the first time you try doesn't mean you can't try again. You can. You can go back and have another go. And you can keep doing that so long as the JobKeeper payment is on foot. Now, it's scheduled to end on the 30th of September, but I just want to point out, because I was looking for this provision as I was speaking a moment ago, Section 20 or or Rule 20 says an entitlement to JobKeeper payment under this part may be cancelled, revoked, terminated, varied or made subject to conditions by or under later legislation. So they can revoke this at any given point in time. So let's assume, for example, that everything goes extraordinarily well beyond our wildest dreams, and by the end of May, the rugby league is right, everything's back to normal. I say that a bit facetiously, but, you know, the rugby league is proposing to restart on May 28. If we get to the end of May and everything's fine, it's possible that they'll just terminate the whole scheme and everybody's back at work. I don't think that's likely to happen but it is theoretically possible now there's all sorts of issues about this turnover test that is problematic so comparison gst turnover there's all sorts of rules about how you calculate that turnover and there seems to be a lot of problems around this so for example i'll just give you one problem if You bill a client in April of 2020, and it's a large bill. It might be a bill for $200,000 for a small company, and you know that the client will not be able to pay. Is that turnover in the current period? Well, it actually depends in some ways on whether you use a cash or accruals basis of taxation. If if you use an accruals basis, well, when you send out the bill, that's turnover. That's booked as revenue right now.
1: So if I then don't bill, if I only bill the clients who I know will pay and I don't bill the clients I know won't pay, does that fall under Section 19?
0: (laughs) Very good question. That's exactly what I was about to say. I think it might. I think it might because the only reason you are not billing those clients is to avoid turnover so that you can satisfy the 30% decline requirement. I think that could fall within Section 19, and it may depend on other circumstances surrounding that particular entity and the way it does its billing. But if the only reason you can give for not billing somebody is because of your desire to satisfy the decline in turnover, That could well be a problem under Section 19 of the Act. That's the turnover test. I don't want to go into any more detail about the problems, but there are, as you can see, a number of issues that can crop up in the context of that turnover test. And then finally, I think I'm up to Condition 6, there's a whole range of notifications that the employer has to make. So, the employer has to notify the commissioner again in the improved form. Is that form out now? I don't think so, but I could be corrected on that. I haven't looked today. So,
1: it's still just a normal expression of interest through the ATO website?
0: Yes. And what you've got to declare there is that the employer elects to participate in the JobKeeper scheme. The employer also has to give information about the entitlement for the specific fortnight including details of the individual, to the Commissioner, again, in the approved form. So there's a number of notifications that need to be made. The timing for those notifications is usually at the end of the relevant fortnight, but in respect of the first and second fortnights, so they're the fortnights essentially for April, It's the end of the second JobKeeper fortnight. So they're giving you a bit of leeway because obviously you couldn't comply with the law before the law was actually available, which is what they would be asking you to do. So you've got a little bit of leeway in the first month. That's the month of April. After that, you're going to have to give the appropriate notification before the end of the fortnight, which again makes sense. Now, that's the position broadly speaking for employers. I did mention right at the beginning that there's a second group, which is an entitlement based on business participation. And this applies to essentially a sole trader a partnership, a trust, and a company. And in essence, what it's saying is that a sole trader can get the $1,500 payment per fortnight if he or she can show the requisite decline in turnover. That would be a sole trader.
1: Does the sole trader need to pay themselves $1,500 a day? You know, because for the first group, the employer actually needs to pay $1,500 a fortnight. Does the uh, sole trader need to take $1,500 a fortnight out of the... um, business to to pay themselves to qualify. I assume that's not the case. I assume that for the second group, there is no link to an actual payment. Is that right? I think we also have the same question. So for example, for a director of a company, if the director of the company pays themselves a wage, then they're basically sitting in the first group. The same with partners in a partnership if the partners pay themselves an official wage then they would sit in the first group the second group really only comes into the game when you don't have an official wage payment because the director only paid themselves dividends they didn't get a a wage or director's fees the beneficiary of a trust doesn't get get a wage anyway the partners in a partnership didn't pay themselves a wage and the sole trader didn't pay him or herself a wage Because you don't have this wage payment, that's why we have this need for the second group. And because the cash flow boost, for example, didn't have the second group, that's why this entire group fell out of the cash flow boost and only actual paid employees qualified for the cash flow boost or businesses that had an actual paid employee qualified for the cash flow boost. But now, because of the second group, the JobKeeper payment actually goes a lot further. And includes yes, includes businesses that didn't qualify for the boost,
0: yes, no that is correct, that is correct, and you can only get one, $1 fifteen hundred dollar payment per fortnight in all four cases,
1: yes, per so, director, per uh, beneficiary, per partner, oh let me say well, differently, no, 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 company, no 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 per company per trust, per partnership, and per sole
0: correct. So a partnership, for example, has to nominate which partner gets it. A trust has to nominate which beneficiary gets it. A company has to nominate which director gets it. And they get the $1,500 payment from the government.
1: Yes, completely irrespective of what, whether a, a wage payment had been Paid. Actually, not irrespective
0: because if a wage payment had payment been made, been then they would
1: be in the first group.
0: Yeah, except that a sole trader doesn't really pay itself a wage. For that matter, partnership at law doesn't really pay itself a wage either, it doesn't pay the partner a wage. I know we call it sometimes a salary, but technically, partnership can't really pay its partners a salary. So they would all fall under this $1,500 per second fortnight group. rule. Yeah, second group. Interestingly, one of the structures that is a problem with this is a structure where you have a business run by a unit trust. The units in the unit trust are held by discretionary trusts. That's quite common in, in certain business sectors, particularly if they're family members. They might have two discretionary trusts for two different wings of the family. Then the unit trust actually runs the business. In that circumstance, nobody on my reading of the legislation gets this payment. In circumstances where a business is run by a unit trust and that unit trust is owned in the sense that the units are owned, by two or more family discretionary trusts, on my reading of the legislation, nobody will be entitled to the $1,500 payment. That's because the unit trust doesn't have an individual as the owner. It carries on a business, so it meets that requirement, but it doesn't have an individual, an adult individual as the owner. The discretionary trusts have adult individuals as beneficiaries, presumably, but it does not carry on the business. The defect in the legislation, if you want to call it a defect, is that there is no look through in those sort of situations. I suspect they won't fix that, but they could look at that to see whether they could in some way accommodate a need to allow that kind of structure to benefit from this JobKeeper payment. But at the moment, there's nothing there to allow that. Now, that's pretty much the nuts and bolts of it. There are lots of other issues around the JobKeeper payment, but I think that gives you a pretty good summary of what the main areas of contention are. There are lots of other issues that I haven't really touched on. So I've touched on many things, but one of the big picture questions that we kind of touched on in some of the question and answer that you gave me is, can the employer pick and choose amongst the eligible employees and who chooses? So it seems to me that the employee chooses whether they want to be part of this scheme. But if they don't choose, then I guess they're just outside the JobKeeper payment, but other employees are insiders. Now, I'm not quite sure how that logistically works. The legislation at varying times seems to suggest that it's either all in or nobody's in, and then at other times seems to suggest that you can have some in and some not in. But I'm still not sure how that is going to work out, whether you can actually have a company partially involved in the JobKeeper scheme. Then when it comes to the turnover test, does it matter whether you're a monthly or a quarterly BAS lodger, I think the answer is it doesn't matter. You can be a quarterly lodger but use a monthly turnover test based on the comparison month of the previous year. Again, the legislation is not entirely clear on that, but it seems to me that by implication, you can be a quarterly lodger but still use a monthly turnover test. When it comes to cash accruals, I've already talked about that. And I think that probably covers most of the issues that I want to touch on. Personal services income, not entirely clear whether if you have PSI, this is income which is not ordinarily treated as a wage. But, is effectively treated as one through the PSI measures, whether that would give rise to a JobKeeper entitlement.
1: But if it doesn't give rise to a wage and hence be in the first group, then it's in the second group because the um, person who attracts PSI will probably be a director of a company. So if it's not treated as a wage, then they just fall into the second group and still qualify.
0: That may be true, that may be true, but remember, you can then only get one payment.
1: Yes, of course. You can't claim it as a member of the first group and then also of a member of the second group. Correct.
0: Yes. So you just get the one, $1 fifteen hundred dollars per fortnight payment in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. You could. You could. You're quite right. You could fall into that second category.
1: I still have a question for you, okay. Bob, and that is we kind of put non-profit into brackets before, but when we come back oh. to the first condition of doing business in Australia on the first of March, 2020. That doesn't apply to a non-profit, correct? A non-profit doesn't need to be doing business on the 1st of March. They just must have existed on the 1st of March.
0: Well, it's a little bit, slightly more than that, but yes, you're right. What they have to show, to use the language precisely, on the 1st of March, they have to be a non-profit body that pursued its objectives principally in Australia. So it so must be an Australian yeah, yeah. charity. Essentially, it's got to be an Australian charity. It can have some operations overseas, but they have to be incidental. It and has then, to for be principally it, in Australia.
1: And then, for the charity to show the drop of 15% in GST turnover, if it's okay. a true charity yeah. in terms of that, it just collects yeah. donations and then yes. uses yes. these donations, for example, to fund research. Yes. Then this drop in turnover would mean drop in donations. Correct.
0: Yes, and I'm glad you've raised that point. There is a specific provision in Rule eight eight, eight brackets eight, which modifies the calculation of GST turnover, specifically to say that for an entity that is a deductible gift recipient, so that's an entity DGR which yeah, DGR, yeah. when you make a donation to it, it automatically means it's deductible to the payer. Each gift is treated as a receipt in respect of the entity making a supply.
1: So that means, yes, you just need a 15% drop in donations to meet the uh, turnover test.
0: Correct. That's right.
1: A big question with all of this, but that leads more into employment law, and I don't know how how much oh you prepared to mm-hmm. talk about that. And it, it links back to this comment I made before that annual leave, sick leave and long service leave for permanent or part-time employees just keep, continues tickering along in the background why the employees stood down. And I understand that a lot of restaurant operators have basically not stood down the employees but terminated the employment and changed them to casual. And I don't know how legal that is. Is Do you know, to the best of your knowledge, is it allowed to, when you're in a lockdown like this, is it allowed to just kind of tear up a full-time employee contract and just change them to casual without prior notice from, you know, from today to tomorrow?
0: I suspect that you probably can't do that. I would imagine there'd be multitude of breaches of the Fair Work Act.
1: Yeah, I thought so too. um,
0: I couldn't tell you for sure. One of the issues that we have been grappling with at the Tax Institute is this question of what can tax agents provide advice on? Um, Can they give advice on the JobKeeper payments? And I think the answer to that is yes because it is part of the tax law. But I've cautioned our members that they need to be very careful when they stray into areas of employment law and unfortunately the two will kind of run up against one another. And you've you've asked the classic question that will give rise to this sort of issue, but I I can't give you a better answer. the last thing that i would just say is that between them the cash boost and the job keeper payments should enable about in my estimate about 70 to 80% of affected businesses to continue and survive throughout this lockdown period this so-called hibernation period unfortunately it's not going to save all businesses. For one reason or another, it won't apply to a lot of businesses. It won't apply to a lot of employees. It also, even where it does apply, in some cases, it won't be enough. We are, as a result, going to lose businesses, but unfortunately, that is the outcome of a very difficult period that we're all living through. I think the government has, through this cash flow boost and job keeper arrangements, come up with a package that is the most effective it can be in a hurry to ensure the survival of most, but not all, businesses. And I think they should be commended for at least doing that and doing it in a way that I think is certainly expensive, certainly will saddle future generations with some debt, but as I said at the start, it's something that did have to be done.
1: Welcome back. So there are two groups for the JobKeeper payment. In the first group, you have employers and paid employees, and both need to meet certain conditions to qualify. One of the conditions is that the employer pays $1,500 per fortnight to an eligible employee. But then you have the second group, sole traders, company directors, partners, and trust beneficiaries. And these also need to meet certain conditions, but less. Especially, you don't need an eligible employee and you don't need a $1,500 per fortnight payment. Sole traders, partners, beneficiaries, and company directors qualify if they meet the remaining conditions, so the business or charity existed at the 1st of March, the business is not an excluded entity, they experienced a drop in GST turnover of 15% or 30% or 50%, and they notified the commissioner that they want to participate in the scheme. In the next update, Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal will answer more questions about the JobKeeper payment. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.